I think there is a way of teaching about these things in a way that kind of uh, invigorates people. And I think there's ways of kind of teaching people, you know, here's a really cool way that you can maybe make something methodologically innovative, open science, transparency related, innovative, and then answer substantive questions. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Jacob Miranda, an advanced doctoral student in the Experimental Psychology Program here at the University of Alabama, where I have a concentration in social psychology. And I'm Cassie Witt, a pedagogical assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Western Kentucky University. Together, we are the hosts of Corrupting the Youth, a podcast about the teaching of psychology. If you love psychology, education, or both, then this is the podcast for you. Hello, 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 beautiful people. Today, we have another amazing person to talk to on the podcast, Dr. William J. Chopik, but I've always been introduced to him as just Bill. He's received his Bachelor's in Science and Psychology and Sociology from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, hopefully I'm not butchering that institution, and he got his PhD from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Bill works within the Psychology Department at Michigan State University, MSU. He's also the lab director for the Close Relationships Lab, and is also in charge of a group of researchers at MSU interested in the science of close relationships, individual differences, and lifespan development. Now, Bill has been quite involved in the open science movement, participating in large projects such as the Replication Report in Many Labs 5, and in organizations such as the Collaborative Replications and Education Project, or CRAPE for short. Although we plan to talk about one of his most published works, or one that we care about when it comes to teaching of psychology, uh, we decided we have to ask him about his most important contribution to humanity. Cassie? His Twitter account. (laughs) (laughs) And specifically, um, I'm thinking of a tweet I saw earlier this year where you had included um, a copy of your SPSP poster uh, for 2022, uh, Senescence of Feeless Caddis, Development of Cat Personality and Links to Important Outcomes. Um, and like the discussion on that says, uh, cats do have identifiable personality traits. They differ by age, and there might be a connection between pet owner and pet cat's personalities. Um, as a self-proclaimed cat lady with three cats, um, I really, really enjoyed that poster. <laughs> like, what was what was sort of like the starting place with that? You know, it's amazing. For like three month stretches, I forget that like Twitter's public. Uh, so when I post things. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no one will ever see this and I'll just forget about it so I can take great liberties with. uh, Right. uh, And then every once in a while, someone says, oh, yeah, I remember that thing you posted and (laughs) I get all red and I remember, oh, my God, people are looking at that. Um, It's one of my favorite projects I'm working on right now. Um, And I think, yeah, like I'm a self-proclaimed cat guy. Um, Like I had dogs growing up and then cats ever since. And I'm seeing a colleague's brand new cat after his podcast, actually. So his family adopted it yesterday. So Amazing. It's going to be really good. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of got obsessed with people being really, really fascinated with dogs and how they're so wonderful and varied and have personalities. And then kind of there's a lot of like anti-cat rhetoric out in the world right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that project was to kind of show that indeed cats are kind of different from one another. And then Yeah. Maybe they change over time. Maybe the ways they're different are related to important things. So, and it also gives me an excuse to like look at cat photos every day. So <laughs> that's how I start the day, and Absolutely. then gets you off on the right foot. 
Yeah, I think I need to make a shift in my research. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I love the, uh, I think it's like a regression uh, graph on the poster, but instead of like having circles as data points, just individual cats that make up each of the data, I was just like, that's beautiful. Whoever thought of that little touch, very nice. Yeah, cat silhouettes. Yeah, that took hours and hours to do, <laughs> and it was one of those things you waste a ton of time on, and you're like, this it was worth it. This yeah, absolutely. It. It was worth in our eyes. We see, we see the hard work that was put into it. We're just <laughs> like, <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. That's great. So now that we got the most important stuff out of the way, we can actually do basic intros. Um, so generally, what we like to ask everyone who's come into the podcast so far, so we've done this a couple times now, um, is can you tell like someone who's you know maybe not familiar with you a little bit about you, your education background, and even though I kind of hinted at your general research interests, like maybe your general research interests that's like currently ongoing or like maybe more present at the moment, like the CAT project or others? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was born in Chicago, a south side of Chicago, and I went to Illinois, University of Illinois. Um, and yeah, I went to University of Michigan and I study, yeah, close relationships, how they and the people in them change over time. Uh, but beyond that, we all do all sorts of things, basically like, um, why are you the way that you are? You know, what is it about, say, where you live that might affect you, or um, the conditions into which you're born, or um, the romantic partners you find yourself with, or your friends? Um, and yes, of course, cats, cats and dogs. Um, but yeah, we we do all sorts of kind of varied things, and a lot of it is like, why are people happy, and how do they make meaningful social connections? Um, yeah, in terms of my journey, I just got really fascinated by psychology and, but yeah, I, it, there's all sorts of different experiences I can kind of bore you with. I, we did a dating study early on in um, undergrad that I kind of fell in love with research uh, during. Um, I used to work as, at a bar in high school, which um, sounds illegal and might have been, but I, from that experience too, I kind of got to know people really well. So we'd have these really, really long shifts where I would kind of just talk to customers and coworkers. I kind of just got fascinated by people's lives and kind of what they want in their lives and kind of where their lives didn't really go as planned and what they want in their lives. So ever since then, I've just been studying those things and I've kind of, it's always been really, really fun. And as an add on to that, I remember when I was an undergrad a few years back now, I took a personality psychologist, he unfortunately passed away, by a guy named Dr. Will Dunlop who I think he took things where he tried to understand personality as like a life story. And so like he would listen to people's stories. I was wondering, did you do any of that type of work as well? Like, or is it more like traditional, like fill out this inventory of items or is it more of how did you get to where you are? And like, let's record that and see if there's any themes in there. Yeah. So I love, yeah, I know Will, um, I knew well. And um, I think I think about research the way he actually did it, but I don't do it myself like that because yeah, you know, in a way, like a lot of our lives are kind of how we make uh, meaning out of them, how we make an understanding when like both of you have le had led kind of remarkable lives in the sense that you've kind of met a lot of people, you've been influenced by a lot of people. And, you know, sometimes our active reflection on those things can be really important to who we are. Um, you know, I, I think I try to make more like fine grained um, things like how does this one thing affect people rather than you know, have people reflect on their life stories. Um, yeah, so a lot of times we'll kind of use longitudinal data before and after something important happens, like uh, soldiers deploying, uh, like going overseas. 
Uh, or, you know, before and after people get married or if they lose a partner. And yeah, a lot of it is people just filling out surveys. Uh, and, you know, we kind of take that at face value. So if I ask you, are you relatively happy? And you say, yeah. I I'm not assuming that you're totally delusional about that. Uh, you know, there's probably some <laughs> accuracy. Um, so you don't directly ask why are you the way you are i feel like that would give people a little bit of a personal crisis <laughs> no I, the goal is not trigger some existential crisis i have enough of those every day I'm <laughs> researchers to do that so uh, yeah we, we try to keep it relatively you know benign. fair enough and, and you kind of hinted and kind of like we'll ring you in for is that you did this really cool project when it comes to teaching but before we jump into the details of that something i'm always curious about it's Everyone kind of has a general overlap of their teaching philosophy. So, right, there's usually some core components that everyone kind of agrees should be part of their teaching philosophy. Um, but I also believe like there's usually like unique features at an individual, like, something that makes them stand out. And Cassie and I have gone in and on about like what we think is like, kind of the most important, or kind of like what makes it unique for us. But I'm kind of curious for like your own personal philosophy, what like kind of if I were to ask like, your brand of that, of like, you want students to succeed, you want to be better, but like, how do you go about that? Like, what is your approach to teaching? Uh, yeah, well, I'm sure you've already had discussions about how there's tons of commonalities. Like we want to encourage critical thinking, whatever, apply this to your lives and all these things. And I do want all those things, of course, you know, I don't want them to not be critical thinkers. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think my, my personal kind of application is that a lot of teaching is kind of an ongoing conversation between two people and you know there's a gap in like things that I know that perhaps they don't know yet and I feel like as soon as I made that shift I got better as a teacher especially like grad students and people who go to college for the first time it's like you know these are adults they've lived lives so far would it be like infantilizing if I just assumed that they knew nothing <laughs> or that they didn't come to my class without some thought or experience or mm -hmm. something kind of applies so uh, yeah a lot of my um, teaching is more conversational um, especially things like grad methods where I'm kind of trying to teach people how to do stuff. Um, a lot of that is like, well, here's what you probably already know. And then here's an extension of it with this like added wrinkle. And then here's like a cool thing you could do with it. Um, and yeah, like all, all the assignments are sort of like that too, like go home and apply it to you, this type of question that you might. So as soon as I made that turn of like, students have lived varied lives of both amazing and terrible things. And what's a way I can make this kind of accessible so that, you know, it's a beneficial relationship for them in the sense that they feel like they learned something that they could critically evaluate stuff, but then also get a sense of like, oh, we had a genuine kind of interaction and relationship where I always have their best interests, obviously, but then they're like, okay, well, no, he like talked to us like human beings, kind of saw us as individuals rather than kind of job that he kind of... <laughs> Uh, begrudgingly goes, goes to every day and is always looking at a spot and a lot of it is really just kind of an interaction with people you hope to have yeah good interactions with and that you want to do well um, so that would maybe be my personal take along with all the other boilerplate stuff that you mentioned of course do you feel like does it ever surprise you about how they get surprised when you just basically treat them like with basic dignity or like to me that's always weird they're like I've had people yeah. who are like, I forgot my mechanics bill. It's a two hour drive back. I'll go back. I'll provide what's an answer. I'm like, oh no, you don't have to. And they're like, are you sure? No one's ever done that for me before. And I'm like, really? No one's just giving you the benefit of the doubt. Like that to me, that always still kind of like shocks me. Like the way they talk about other instructors. I'm like, what's, what's going on here? 
Yeah, the bar is the floor, apparently, because it's like, oh, um, well, why would I, why would I force you to drive home for two hours and get this thing that like would disrupt, you know, like, just don't worry about it. Like, I know you're good for it because like you're here and you're part of this broader enterprise. Yeah, it's shocking when you hear how other people are treated and you're like, I, I don't know why I would be so unruly with kind of the rules and how I go about class. So um, yeah, basic human dignity, check. That's not the, a great teaching statement if you read that. <laughs> Do I treat students like humans? I try. I try. I try sometimes. You know, I don't always succeed. I need, I need to do better. Right. It's kind of it's sad, though, because I feel like one of the best parts about teaching is just getting to build relationships with students. And it's like you have professors who like don't prioritize that. Like that's so concerning. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I fell in love with it, too. Like I had really great interactions with uh, teachers. Um, mm-hmm. And they kind of show you what is possible. And I think that's like how I got interested in like research too. It's like, oh, they taught me this cool thing that I could then become more competent at. So digging more into like the teaching and replication stuff. Um, so Jacob and I are like both very interested in meta science and the replication crisis and open science and of course teaching. Um, and so we know you have some experience with teaching students specifically about the replication crisis. Um, and you had a study published in 2018 in the journal Teaching of Psychology called How and Whether to Teach Undergraduates About the Replication Crisis in Psychological Science, um, which is a paper like Jacob and I have both read like multiple times um, and like talk about like with our students. Um, so we were hoping like you could tell, um, I guess, our listeners a little bit about like how this study came about and like what the primary findings were? Uh, Yeah, I think it came about because I went to grad school during this kind of really interesting time. So I think it was like my second year of grad school, there was an article called False Positive Psychology, and it Mm -hmm. talked about how, you know, through various nefarious, not necessarily intentional, but a few things that you could do that kind of increase your chance of statistical significance. And then there was a big uh, fraud case that perhaps you kind of discussed or reader or listeners might be familiar with. Um, and then, yeah, there were just like a lot of reforms. There was replications that started coming out. And when you look at the modern textbooks at the time, you know, this is like 2011 through 2016, um, there kind of just wasn't a lot of discussion about like, there's discussion about rigor, like, right. you know, you should have adequate sample sizes and appropriate designs and you should measure things well. But there's a sense in which like there was this, um, like bomb going off in the field and like the people inside the building, like the students just kind of didn't know about it. So I thought like, you know, one thing would be to maybe test the waters. Like what if I just kind of revealed like everything good and bad that's happening right now. And uh, that was the initial plan was to kind of just give like a special lecture that kind of, if you can try to summarize the replication movement or the credibility revolution, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. into like an hour long lecture that kind of hits the main points and doesn't terrify people. <laughs> what would that kind of look like? Um, so yeah, me and my friend Ryan Bremner, who's an author on that, and then two grad students, Andrew and Victor, we kind of just started workshopping this lecture to see, you know, would this be appropriate? We, we put tons and tons of hours into it. We wrote a whole script. We chose images carefully. Um, and yeah, like we, we gave it to students and, um, you know, some of them were, this. the reactions were pretty varied. You know, sometimes people were like, this is really weird. Uh, I can't believe I've ever heard of this. Um, some people didn't care, which is fine. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't get everybody to care. 
not all, not even all researchers care, right? But yeah, it, it was a sense of like, okay, well, another thing, and another thing that actually I care a lot about is that we should be doing a service to the students because they're kind of the reason we exist in these roles and it's they're taxpayers and their parents are taxpayers and we hope that they graduate with psychology degrees or social science degrees and that they'll continue to advocate for kind of the benefit of science um, mm-hmm. so th- so that was the idea of we should kind of track what they think about stuff because you know, are they kind of getting an accurate representation of the studies they're participating in, the studies that they're funding, the studies that their tuition dollars are going to. Um, So a lot of people think it's just one study, but it's kind of this like broader mission that the author team had where we were like, oh, actually, it's kind of important to gauge people's reactions to this if we were to kind of tell them the full story. I'm kind of curious before we move on to like the next uh, question we had, is there... I guess, any plans to continue that type of work that you're doing or like maybe has your interpretation. So sometimes I'll talk with people who wrote a manuscript and got it published like years back. They're like, oh, I actually interpret that differently now or I've changed my mind on some things. Has any of that happened within like the past four years or so since it's been published? Yeah, we did a longitudinal follow-up actually. So we were giving it every semester. Um, and then at some point we we got a grant from Association for Psychological Science and we were actually able to pay people to take a follow-up study where we gave them the same like attitude measures. Mm-hmm. And for some of those people, they heard the lecture like three years ago. Uh, so it's like, they've taken all these psychology classes in between. They've seen crazy political slash psychological things happen in the meantime. Um, and, or, you know, they've read tons of press releases and things, studies that have gotten attention. And one thing we found is that the attitudes were pretty resilient, actually. So, you know, some attitudes had changed right after the lecture, which was what the study was about. But then, you know, a lot of people were pretty resilient uh, for better and for worse uh, years later. So, you know, for some people, their confidence really wasn't shaken. Uh, Some of them still want to go to grad school. Some of them still trust psychology. So, yeah, we've done that follow up. Uh, We've done some focus groups among graduate students, actually. Um, and that was a little bit different because here are these people that are going to be applying the, all their knowledge to generate research. And I, I, yeah, it's, it's always like an interesting time to be a graduate student, even now, uh, Jacob and Cassie, I'm sure your time was really eventful too, where there's always some different kind of thing going on in the field that you have to attend to. For me, it was the replication stuff, but for others, it'll be like replication stuff and how do we make our samples more representative or more diverse? Um, how do you leverage an opportunity to do psychological science in other settings, like an industry setting versus an academic setting? So yeah, so talking to them, like the di- crazy discussions came up like, well, how could we apply like transparency and openness if we go work for a private company? Like, how do we make sure they're doing good research? And like, I, you know, I don't know if that's like a huge discussion happening right now. Or how do we study vulnerable groups in a way that's rigorous does them justice and is able to include them more. Um, So yeah, so like we've done some kind of discussion-based groups on that. So that's all qualitative work at the moment. That's so cool. Because now I wonder, especially given this new information, right, where I feel like a very common fear, and this is maybe anecdotal, but like I feel like when you talk to people of like, should we be talking about this? Should we teach undergrads? A lot of people like this will change their views completely. We're going to lose complete trust. They won't think of psychology as a science anymore. But based kind of what you're saying, it's if even if there might be like a short term immediate effect, it's not necessarily long lasting. So given that if people are resilient for better or for worse, like 
do you believe then, and this is kind of like the big question, should we be teaching about the replication crisis in our classes? Should it be set to like only graduate students? Should it be undergrads as well? And as science educators, like part of the process of like teaching stats and teaching methods is how to teach science works, right? Like, is it an obligation to go over that history? Like, is it everyone's obligation to be like, especially if you're in psych and social psych where you're like the poster child of the credibility revolution or replication crisis? Do you feel like people need to do this, that they should do this, or it's just like, eh, it doesn't really matter ultimately. Yeah, because I I know like I have definitely heard people arguing like there is a point where it's just like too early in like a student's education to like talk about these issues because you're going to make them just completely skeptical about psychology research. I wanted to I went to give a talk like just after the paper got published and yeah, it was some senior person who will remain nameless. And I think he was skimming like my CV and he's like, should we teach undergrads about the replication crisis? And he said, well, no. <laughs> like he, so he's like, I didn't read the paper. He's just like, I read the title. Right? So the answer is no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, for the very reason that, yeah, like Cassie mentioned, where do you, do you kind of make people so cynical or so down on something uh, that it will turn them on? So on one hand, I want people to be enthusiastic about the field. It kind of makes it continue. There's no shortage of grad students, although there's a lot of things that grad, could make grad school a lot better for people, uh, like more money. Um, mm. just, just for one. Um, Jacob is nodding <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I want them to be enthusiastic. And then a few people have mentioned, like, maybe this should shake our confidence a little bit in the field. Like, you know, if I, if I told you that we spent tons and tons of resources, people hours, and taxpayer dollars, and we were maybe doing stuff in a really suboptimal way. And I will also say when you do science badly, it has the potential to harm people as well. So like there's a million reasons why you might wanna do better research. So they're saying like, oh, you know, maybe maybe the reputation of psychology should be compromised because like we aren't good at stuff. So like maybe like it's a logical thing to be like, oh, psychologists are not good at stuff. I will say there there is a way, I, I, I get really worried about kind of the cynicism and kind of teaching grad students early on that things aren't worth doing. I think there is a way of teaching about these things in a way that kind of uh, invigorates people. So, I mean, you, you two seemingly probably talk about this stuff a lot, um, so much so that you're not like avoiding it uh, by any means. So you, you get, you find it at least a little bit interesting. And I think there's ways of kind of teaching people, you know, here's a really cool way that you can maybe make something methodologically innovative, open science, transparency related, innovative, and then answer substantive questions. You know, one thing is in the next 10 years, you'll probably see a bunch of people, this depends on hiring stuff too, but like standalone meta-scientists who like, they strictly study these types of issues for their whole career. And I think that that's different than it was like 15 years ago, where someone can literally sell themselves like, hey, no, I like evaluate research. And that's very different too. So the goal is also like these open science things gives people the opportunities to learn a lot of methodological skills. So that's another reason why it could get people really enthusiastic too. So, um, so yeah, you, you tapped into the, my major existential thing where it's like, I really worry about the students and what they'll think and what they'll think about themselves and what they're spending time on every day. So in my dissertation work, um, I was like very inspired by like your study. And so like I looked at how teaching students about the replication crisis affects epistemic dependence. So like students like reliance or like really like their trust in an authority figure, right? So like this authority figure believes this. So like, I'm going to believe it too. And 
it's like something that I think about a lot, how we, like you said, like we don't want them to become cynical, but like skepticism is still like really good to develop, right? So at like some point, like there's a right amount of trust that students need to have in psychology science, psychological science. Um, But of course, like the right amount of trust is incredibly difficult to like operationalize. But like something, yeah, I think about and like what I talk about, like in my own teaching philosophy, this calibration of of trust where it's like we really want students to like trust us so that we can teach them things and they can gain new knowledge at the same time. Like we don't want them to blindly trust us because there are things that, you know, we, we don't know or like things in our science that are, you know, false positives or like aren't necessarily true. Um, And I know like when you did your study, like, I think, well, I think you found like there was like slight decrease in trust after students like learned about the replication crisis, which was also something that like I found when I like um, gave students measures of trust as well. And I guess you kind of already answered this, but Jacob and I are like always asking this question, like, is loss of trust necessarily a bad thing? Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. You, you said it well, cause it's like, I want, I want students to look to me as an expert. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then I proceed to tell them a million reasons why you shouldn't trust experts. Um, And does it undermine the entire enterprise uh, by saying that a bunch of stuff doesn't replicate? Again, I I think you can kind of, getting back to the, um, almost like having a relationship or a conversation with students, there there is a way of engendering like we're in this together thing. Like we're a team here. And the collective goal is to kind of improve psychological science. And, you know, one of the ways I'm going to do that is kind of teach you all the ways that these things might be problematic. Um, So, yeah, there is this weird sweet spot of trust. This like curvilinear thing where like not enough is not not enough is good. Blindly following authority and never challenging anything. Yeah. Um, Both of those things are like really modern problems in our society right now, too. So how do you kind of encourage people to employ enough critical thinking that can kind of make broader humanity better and then also broader science so if you can recognize what is good science and bad then maybe you could advocate for the good stuff or if you have a really important problem someday you know how to go about doing it well but it's a it's a constant struggle so i you know we could go into class every day and be down in the dumps tell people all the stuff that sucks but um yeah you have to kind of inspire them on some level i feel like this this goes to like my seesaw of existential crises that happen don't happen like depending on like what the latest event is right because you said like things sometimes pop up like sometimes I feel invigorated by whatever's on like the Twitter news or the Twitterverse and what people are talking about so like I know a big one was like in November of 2021 uh, like testing Cardi B's theory that hoes don't get cold right and like instead of like me getting down it's like oh this is exciting because this is a good point of like how like these sensational headlines like still kept like it was a good teaching moment um but other times like more recently there was this thing with like alzheimer's research and like two decades of alzheimer's researchers like 16 years of it was on this core original study that just happened to be like photoshopped or had like altered images and so like I have aunts, I have theas who had Alzheimer's. Like, I know that people sign up their loved ones for these clinical trials, thinking that even if this person passes away, at least they're contributing to some sort of truth, right? Or like they're helping the future. And like to find out that like a whole branch of something that is within the psychologist realm, like cognitive psychologist realm and the clinical researchers, like that gets a bit depressing then. Like, cause it's something then I, I try to bring those modern events into the classroom as they happen to be like, hey, remember what we talked about? It's still happening in the world. Like this has like an immediate consequence of what we're talking about to try to like get that. Cause I feel like many times students, they learn something in the classroom, but not might not be able to connect it to like let's say real life 
And like for that, even as I talk about it and feel obligated to talk about it, it's like it's hard. So like I've taught statistics three different times now. And sometimes I feel like I teach it and it's almost too optimistic or they'll say like, oh, that's just a psych problem. But like this semester, I felt like I went in the opposite direction and I went too much the cynical route because I like started talking about all the fields and all the things going on in science. And so when you teach your classes, do you want to, again, talk about it at the undergraduate level or just the graduate level? And also, like, to what degree do you talk about it? So like this time around, I spent like four lectures. I spent I spent a full week and then some change, like laying out the groundwork, talking about the incentive system, because like it was a really comprehensive approach. Or you do kind of take like what you did with your published work, where it's like, I have a single lecture, it's condensed, this is the most important information, and I'll teach it like either at the beginning of semester, or I know sometimes like Cassie, you put it like towards the end of the semester. What is the right timing? What is the right frequency? Like, what is the right level of depth? I know that's like a loaded question, but it's just like... Like, how would one, like, tackle this if they really care about putting it into their classroom? Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one, because, you know, Cassie's perspective is invaluable, and it's like, here, I taught you kind of these things in the traditional sense. Mm-hmm. Now, moving forward, maybe you could reflect on these other things, or things moving forward in kind of a new way. I try to banish all illusions right away, <laughs> which is a different <laughs> approach, um, but, like, you could you could kind of get a sense where that might not be the best thing, where... The first lecture is like, here's how exciting this class, like I teach a close relationships class. Like, here's about like love, and like how to find like your one. And like, I don't know, like all the happy things and how to live a happy life and whatever, uh, have love all the time. Um, and then I have this like new lecture where I'm like, okay, so like everything I'm gonna kind of teach you, there might be some accompanying challenges too because like it kind of wasn't done well the first time. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's a tough balance. Yeah, I so I have the standalone lecture that I still do. But then, yeah, as stuff pops up, because I teach like upper level undergrad classes right now, they've taken like four or five classes um, where they've learned a ton of things. So I'll, like there was one on uh, depression and serotonin recently um, that was making the rounds a little bit. Uh, so I talked about that and it's usually just like, a, hey, I start the lecture like, hey, this is the, the recent thing in the news that psychologists are talking about right now. And that, that it, when you phrase it that way, it's a little bit better because it's like, oh, this is kind of what's dominating. Normal people care about like Pete, uh, Pete uh, Davidson and like Kim Kardashian. That's the news yeah. that they care about. And then like, here's the psychology related one. And it's never quite as sensational as like the dating lives of celebrities, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, this is kind of occupying our time. So I partially study lifespan development too. We're interested in health and cognition. So yeah, the Alzheimer's story was like huge. Um, Mm -hmm. For many of the reasons you said, Jacob, was like, we have family members affected by this. Um, The people who joined these trials thought that they were doing good. And then, you know, the researchers were acting in bad faith. And my big thing is as the population ages, like more and more people will be affected by it. Maybe perhaps we will be um and we lost time uh and useful information and that's the real cost of doing bad research too is that the people involved were harmed and then there's also an ethical consideration where you could have been spending that those time and resources in a smarter way so yeah so i try to hit it all at once partially because it's in a very concentrated time and moment then yeah i kind of pepper it in throughout. But you know, there's strengths of all these different approaches. Uh, And as long as you kind of get them to think critically a little bit, regardless of how you do it, that's a success. 
as a new, a brand new faculty member with uh, several new preps this semester, I've been thinking a lot about learning objectives. Um, and so really like trying to nail down like my own like learning objectives I have for students and like focusing so much on like open science and the replication crisis and stuff. So I'm also just like curious, like if you have any advice, like what do you think are like some potential consequences of like teaching students, grad students or undergrads about, you know, meta science and open science and like what kinds of learning objectives do you think that those accomplish? Uh, I think I'd be super happy if um, it's hard to articulate this on syllabus, but, uh, you know, when you encounter some press release, uh, like the Cardi B thing, I don't know, any, anything kind of sensational, I hope that your first reaction is skepticism. Um, mm -hmm. and that, that I don't want people to live in a cynical world, uh, like that, but, uh, the hope is that like, okay, well, I bet the study that they're talking about doesn't quite say that. Or now that we've kind of dissected what psychological science is, we have a sense where, I doubt that any one study quite tested the Cardi B thing. Um, <laughs> how do you operationalize a Cardi B song into a testable mm -hmm. experiment, right? Why, why didn't we do this with, yeah, uh, yeah, Madonna or I don't know, yeah, Lizzo. Like, well, how do you move from a song <laughs> to a study? Um, yeah, it's, it's something I don't have a lot of experience with. It's um, a new science. It's <laughs> lyrical science. I would go to that free conference. I would too. <laughs> um, so, so that's a learning thing where um, it would, the, the ideal learning objective would be, despite their, the field being deeply problematic and me being cynical about every press release, it still gets me excited to think about. And I think if at the end of that, if that would be really good if that was an objective that we learned. Um, so yeah, it's so part of it is to get them excited. Part of it is to get them to apply it to their lives. And then, yeah, part of it is to kind of like see not great stuff when it comes across their newsfeed. I think one big one that Jacob and I talk about often is just like, it provides like a really nice moment to get students to, or like provide them with skills to cope with epistemic uncertainty. Like science is just like tentative knowledge. Like we're not in the business of like definitively proving things. Um, and I think that that is very much just like a new concept that like a lot of undergraduate students, especially in like research methods their first stats class like they've never really encountered that idea before yeah I mean it's it's really yeah the epistemic I know this is like the subject of like hundreds of pages you wrote um, for your dissertation but yeah, yeah it, I, yeah I wasn't kind of joking before when I said it's something that people have to confront like yeah which sources do you trust and why and is it in your best interest to kind of follow these sources and can you challenge them in a healthy way that kind of because we do need experts of course and we sometimes do need to defer to experts when we don't know stuff. Um, and yeah, there's like an implicit feeling of trust we have with a lot of these sources. And sometimes that's misplaced. It turns out with like research psychologists and a lot of other researchers as well, mm -hmm. like we might've misplaced those. And that one of the reasons, yeah, the lecture that we made for that paper, one of the first early examples is from uh, a health researcher who kind of fabricated an HIV vaccine by like mixing in different animal blood compounds. And I, I told them like this, that's not a psychologist, but imagine if that vaccine went public. Um, and then there were, I think oh, the students were like, oh crap. Yeah. I, I like, it was very, it was like, oh, I see why that would be horribly messed up. You know, one thing about some of the transparency and open science guidelines solves some of this, right? Like mm -hmm. by making things open, uh, by making things accessible, by writing things down ahead of time. You know, the clinical drug trials are a good example of that, where kind of the efficacy of some of these drugs 
seemingly went down after you required people to share data and students were surprised by that too. Uh, that yeah. as if you hold people accountable, perhaps you get truer results. And, you know, perhaps that's one antidote, an, like antidote, but uh, it can't be the only one. Um, well, do you have any like concrete tips for like people who like maybe are like new to teaching about like the replication crisis to undergraduate students? Like, do you have, um, I don't know, Jacob, like maybe like a specific activity that would be like helpful or. Yeah, just like, cause you can imagine that there's some who's like, you know, they got bit by the pill. They're just like, oh my God, that's so important. I want to talk about this, but then they have that initial fear of like, kind of like I said, the balance of going one way or the other or like messing up. And so like throughout your years and you crafting lectures on this, like, is there stuff that you're like, I recognize now that framing things a certain way or talking about things a certain way or just like those type of concrete steps for like a teacher who wants to talk about it, but they don't quite know how or where to even start? Yeah, I think framing is definitely important. Like, I don't think you can just like roll in one day and start shooting from the hip and talk about this stuff. And it's not good for you. It's not good for them. it's not good for the field. Yeah. Um, but damn, will it be entertaining though? Uh, <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, Wild Bill going off, it's great. Um, <laughs> we'll get a recording of that, don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> My psychology instructor lost his mind at this point for an hour and a half about all the studies he hates. Um, yeah, it's, it's, no, the framing is of the utmost importance because, yeah, because that's another thing, like, I have to be sensitive to the fact that students are in this for a purpose, kind of, so what's the usefulness of teaching this? Well, it can be a vehicle to maybe challenge traditional forms of authority um, to kind of get them to think critically. Um, I've discovered that most people struggle with the replication, learning about replication stuff because uh, they put a lot of authority in their previous classes and stuff that they read. And whenever you kind of challenge it, it's kind of like disfluent or like creates a lot of dissonance. Um, Oh, well, I read this in a textbook. Certainly someone was vetting the textbook for bad science. And the answer is no, that they don't do that. Uh, Publishers don't really do that. Authors might at some point, but. um, It reminds me of that one study where I think they collected like 30 intro stats books in psychology. And they were just trying to see like how many could define the p-value correctly. And like 90% of them couldn't. And so like, again, in stats, I try to tell them like, yes, it's in the textbook. It's in a lot of textbooks and it's wrong. But like, I'm not sure. Like, it always feels like I'm like an anti-science guy. It's like, you can't trust what you're reading, right? Like, you don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but it's like back to Cassie's point of that calibration of like I don't know what the fine tune is like even be critical of what you read even if it is an official academic textbook because most people are like be critical what you read from like Fox News or MSNBC but no one Mm -hmm. thinks to be like let me be critical of an academic work because it's an academic work the academics are the smart people right they wouldn't get it wrong it's like oh if only you knew or why would they be motivated to be dishonest or like cut corners and um yeah, it's tough. It's yeah. I think when I the first year I moved into my office as an assistant professor, there were all these um, psychology textbooks from like the nineteen seventies, uh, and going through those was wild. And I had the same idea. Like if I had told my students about it, like I would have appeared like having tinfoil hats and like just being totally you know out of my mind based on kind of stuff we were teaching back then. Um, so so yeah, that's that's the delicate balance though. Scientists are humans. They're, they have the same kind of selfish motives and blind spots and biases. Can we trust them a little bit more than kind of cable talk news? Probably. 
Um, but then can we still be pretty skeptical? And like, it's not all based on your intuition because like I have intuitions that are wrong all the time when you confront it with data. So if I read a, a study and I'm like, well, that's not possible or that's not how I live my life, that it doesn't quite do the job of challenging it. So um, yeah, it, it's really tough. And I think the, I, yeah, Cassie had said, it's kind of this ongoing conversation where like, Things are subject to revision. We'll kind of learn new things. And I think getting people to invest in the process of science is much better than maybe any individual finding because then you can say, okay, well, these things can be open to revision uh, as we learn more or do things better. And yeah, talking to my parents all the time throughout the pandemic, there were a lot of unique kind of instances of that where maybe some advice changed or some recommendations changed or they told you to stop worrying about this thing and worry more about this other thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think for a lot of people that don't have like a really extensive science literacy background got really, really frustrated. But in reality, like that, that was one lesson of like, oh yeah, they, we go through some of the same pains where we kind of have to revise stuff. And then do you trust us enough to take us at our word when we tell you you should care about this other thing? I definitely agree. I remember for Fauci was quickly dubbed like flip flop Fauci for like updating his beliefs on the masks or no masks or this or that. But like he was updating his beliefs for the most part, according to like new evidence as it comes, which is what scientists should do. But like for most people, all they saw was someone who kept on like changing their mind. I'm like, but that's part of the process. You you revise your beliefs based off what the new evidence says. So. And there's some humility needed involved with that, that like I and others can be wrong. But you know, people want an answer and they want a definitive answer. And like both of you have done research long enough to know that, you know, it's hard to come up with those, at least for one individual study. Yep. You're already laying out secretly my dissertation of what I'm actually doing. So we'll invite you again and be like, let's talk about my work this time. I love that. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So something I want to ask or a couple of questions I want to ask, and then we can like wrap up because I want to respect your time, of course. And I know you have a cat to see afterwards and I don't want to hold you back. Thinking about it this whole time. <laughs> So first thing I would want to ask is, would you be willing, this is more of like a personal favor, <laughs> but would you be okay if you shared like the lecture you used to teach your own courses? People might be interested in like seeing how a professional does it, how someone who's been doing it for a while, like kind of crafts it. And that might be inspirational. Definitely not for me to like take a peek and be like, oh, I like this. And I like that. <laughs> hey, teaching's all about bar, right? There's a team effort here. Castle, don't sound like it, would be, it sounds like it would be just for you, but I still am happy. <laughs> um, they, they don't need yeah. to know. And, and you can see the evolution of it too, because we shared the lecture stuff, but then it's different now, because just because like, oh, students like don't respond to this as much anymore, so I better revise it. Yeah, they don't understand the Futurama references anymore. You know? So like, like teaching Aww. is kind of, I know, yeah. Um, My heart. I know. So there, it does involve some updating for, for superficial things like that, but then also like substantive arguments. They don't, but the answer is yes, I'm happy to, yeah, share that stuff. Huzzah. All right, then I have one final question before I pass it to Cassie. Um, and this is actually from uh, our advisor, Alexa Tellett. And she wanted me to save this very important question for you. Um, so as a direct quote, she wanted me to ask you, how can I be as funny as you? And can you teach people how to be funny, Bill? Question mark. So this is, this is the question. Mm, I don't think I'm that funny. Like it kind of just like, I, I come from a weird family where like sarcasm is the way we express affection to one another, which now that I'm on a podcast doesn't seem super healthy. 
Um, <laughs> um, it's just like you're literally just roasting people, but they're laughing and you're joking. Yeah. You're like, oh, haha, yeah. And then when you make friends and date people, they're like, please stop. Just be normal. <laughs> Why are you um, being so mean to me? Yeah. And the, no, I really like you. Um, yeah, this is shows I'm liking you. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, <laughs> that's very flattering. Uh, Alexa's pretty funny too, I will say. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think part of that is part of the motivation too. So, like, I use humor in class a lot not always intentionally i'll say um and uh they laugh at me a lot um, yeah a lot of it is again like treating people as you would if you wanted to cultivate a relationship and part of that is um sometimes treating things like lightly and making jokes about things uh and then i will say like sometimes in classes we do have these kind of deeper genuine authentic moments too where especially in relationships it gets you know pretty serious where um, like I tell them about this study we tried to do. A student was really interested in what happens when you, uh, this is a little off topic, uh, when you fart, when you fart in front of a romantic partner for the first time. Um, and it's really gross and I'm sorry. For being gross, it, it's a milestone moment, really. I, I, exactly. This is exactly right. So we it totally, and it like breaks the barrier. <laughs> it um, shows them in a new light. It So that's kind of like funny, right? Where it's, we, we designed a study, this is all hypothetical, where we, we would do a daily diary where we ask people how much they fart. And then <laughs> we would ask their partners, like, do you, do you remember your partner farting, farting today? And, um, so it, it's like a, a joke, but then it, it dovetails into, um, you know, it makes a broader point about expressing vulnerability in front of another person where farting is this biologic that people do. But there's a million other things in which you could be embarrassed for disclosing in front of your partner, right? That a deep, dark secret. Uh, deep fear that you've always worried about. So farting is farting and it's kind of funny because, I don't know, farting is funny. But then it, it kind of dovetails, dovetails into this thing where it's like, oh, you know, it's really just a microcosm for like being a human, authentic human in front of another person. It Does your partner respond in really responsive ways to when you are vulnerable? So, and that's like a darker moment that kind of touches you deep in the soul. Like, oh my God, seeing people for who they truly are. So yeah, I, I don't know how to be funny. I don't know how to teach it. But I, I will say kind of oscillating between stupid jokes and authentic human connection has served me well in teaching. I love it. I love how this connects with what you talked about your philosophy, like as a dialogue or as an ongoing thing, where it's just like, there's going to be a little bit of humor and there's going to be a bit what you said, like authentic or like these real moments. Yeah. And so I love how you even take something that like as what you would say is silly, but you're like, ha ha, silly, but like, let's actually learn from what, like you described it so beautifully. I don't even know like the sensitive moment in a relationship like I just loved it so yeah that, those those connections are good and then yeah hopefully there's no farting in class <laughs> so Alexa if you're listening to this he's basically saying no you can't be funny <laughs> Do <laughs> <laughs> you can tr- uh it, you get points for trying I think. students yeah. see the effort and I think that the amount of serotonin that I get though like when I tell a joke in class and like everybody laughs I'm like whoa this is like peak human existence <laughs> Like, this is what drugs must be like. Yeah. <laughs> no, Bill, it's better than drugs. That serotonin <laughs> high, there's nothing better. Uh, when you get a bunch of 18-year-olds to laugh at your Futurama joke, oh, it's so good. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> You've never even seen this show, Cheers, and yet you just laughed at something that, yeah, it's, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, it's hard though. It's they're they're a, they're a tough audience. Um. Well, Bill, thank you so much for like coming onto the podcast. Our listener audience like isn't huge, but I think it's good, and like we're really excited that they're gonna like have an opportunity to hear you talk about stuff. And just in conclusion, we wanted to give you an opportunity if you had like if you wanted to plug anything, like if you have like any shout outs for like cool research projects you're doing or initiatives you're a part of, or really just like anything that you're excited about. A lot. Yeah, I'm an editor, associate editor at Collabora Psychology, and it's a really fun journal that appreciates good science. So if you're considering submitting something somewhere, listeners, you should try there. We have a ton of really fun stuff going on. Um, we just published a paper on uh, asexuals uh, in relationships. So these are people who don't love physical and sexual intimacy, and yet they find themselves in romantic relationships. Uh, and we have a few projects on that kind of them almost like the life story will Dunlop thing reflect on how they got to where they are um, assuming kind of it, we're in more broadly interested in kind of sexual and gender minorities um, and their life histories we have the cat study which I'm supposed to be writing right now and I think that that'll be exciting when it comes out I'll let you guys know when that happens yeah please do <laughs> yeah, come back and we can talk about cats for the whole hour um, I would love that <laughs> <laughs> um we have a really fun study where everyone, I think it's a qualitative study where 1,200 people told us uh, how they would like to cancel plans on other people. Uh, and the excuses are wild, like weird stuff, normal stuff, but then like bizarre um, excuses. So we're, we're working on that. Uh, and then all the other boring stuff that we normally work on that is not as cool as those things, but so far it doesn't sound boring it sounds like yeah. you're touching into like what like these common human experiences like how do you ghost people and what do you say when you ghost? yeah yeah like, that's great. just like oh that's interesting what do people say yeah yeah it's it's really fun and oh we do a lot of other stuff too like how your personality changes yeah one thing my postdoc rebecca weidman is working on um, speak we talked about alzheimer's a little bit earlier um she has access to all these data sets where is there something special about the person you're married to that might predict um, kind of like cognitively how you look over time when you're older and kind of your health as well? So I think she has like over 50,000 couples from 36 different countries and it's like longitudinal. And uh, so part of that is like, maybe there's some stuff about some cultures that it makes some partners less toxic uh, if you're in a bad relationship or um, it might amplify positive features. And maybe that might predict, you know, how sick you get or if you kind of experience cognitive decline. Uh, so that's one of the cooler things we've ever worked on. It's like we have like Brazilian couples and South Korean couples. Yeah, it's just really, really fun. So yeah, those are the things getting canceled on cats, asexuals uh, and culture. Awesome. Solid body of work. Yeah. yeah thanks so much for letting me kind of ramble. This, yeah, it's always fun to talk about that stuff. All right, then with that, we're probably going to wrap up the podcast. There'll probably be some outro music playing and, you know, editing magic. Um, But thank you, Bill, for getting here. And Cassie, you're good to close off the recording. Hello, hello again. We just wanted to thank you one more time for listening to Two Random Weirdos. If you want to listen to us ramble some more, we'll be posting episodes hopefully bi-weekly on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Fingers crossed. If you want to get in touch with us, we can be found on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at CorruptYouthPod. 
or feel free to email us at corruptingtheyouthpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and helping us spread the corruption. Bye. Bye.